This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am D. Graves. I am here with my bow ready to play on my electric guitar. <laughs> We've got our special guest, James Buckley, today. He's dressed in a bright, shiny blue suit, and we are both going to defend our friend Jason Colvin, who was caught dancing nearly naked in a leotard on top of a couple of Jaguars. Just doing a couple of uh, back walkovers, getting ready for the episode on the hood of a Jaguar. Well, guys, we are back today to go through White Snake track by track. If this is your first time joining us, I know you wanted to listen to White Snake the album. Good news, we're going to give you every story behind every song on that album. And if you want to hear the history leading up to the release of this album, check out our previous episode on White Snake. Here I go again, a history. And today we are joined by our very special guest, Mr. James Buckley. How you doing, James? Wonderful, gentlemen. How are you guys today? Good, man. We're glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's see. Terminally bald. <laughs> Father, husband. During the week, I hang out in courtrooms and wear a tie and watch a guy in a dress stand up and sit down. You know, on the weekends, I'm an amateur rock and roll star, which my wife still lets me do every now and then. I play in a band called Hidden Tracks, which is a 90s alternative rock cover band. And it's the best form of therapy I've found. A couple hours beating on the drums, you feel much better about this, about everything in life. Fantastic, man. Where can we see you guys play? Well, we're not going to make it to Dallas anytime soon, but we're working mostly okay. around North Louisiana and South Arkansas. I live in a a place called Monroe, which actually has some relevance to today's topic. Uh, we have somewhat of a musical history. There's a guy named Lonnie Wilson, who's a studio drummer in Nashville with thousands of recording credits to his name. He's from here. Kevin Griffin from Better Than Ezra was born and raised here. Okay. And more importantly, for our purposes today, this is also the home of baseball player Chuck Finley. <laughs> will come up at some point. We have got to talk about him. That's great. Now, speaking of baseball, you were telling us just a minute ago that your introduction to us was was our major league episode. Is that right? Yeah, my daughter and I were talking about something Jobu related. So I started digging around online, <laughs> stumbled across you guys, listened to the whole episode while driving around town and was instantly hooked. I found the episode on the police. You know, Stuart Copeland's the reason I claim I play drums. So I was fascinated by that episode. And I was hooked from that point on. I started emailing you guys, harassing you endlessly. And now I'm kind of like one of those diseases White Snake members probably dealt with back in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, earlier today, or earlier this week, Jason and I were talking and we were talking about you and Brad Moore. Now, you guys, we've got slated to join us to talk about Allison Chains and STP because we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of a couple of their albums. But Jason's like, yeah, they're our biggest longest patreon members and i said i'm sure they're gonna love it if you call them the biggest longest members we have <laughs> yeah a little boogie nights sensation going there. <laughs> brad is an excellent dude i uh, met him through his son as a friend with my daughter and i'm proud proud to know the guy good good we'll let you guys battle it out who's the biggest and the longest but uh... <laughs> all right d i know you're a golfer 
Sure. When you hit the ball and it goes in the rough, it's hard to see. It is so hard to find. It's not cool when it's in the rough. Nobody wants a bunch of rough around their You ball. want it in the fairway. Yeah. And you want it cleaned up so you can see the ball at all times. Right. The smoother it is, the easier it is to see. That reminds me of our sponsor, Manscaped.com. Oh, yeah. Manscaped.com. They have got incredibly good products. They've sent us some, and we're both totally amazed by what they can do. We've tried the Weed Whacker. We've tried the lawnmower. They've got some great stuff over there at Manscaped.com. You know, if you feel a little bit nervous about getting clippers underneath, say, you know, the Adam's apple, hey, that's okay. They've got products to clean up that nose hair, which, I mean, I know you guys have talked to people with the nose hair that's just dangling out of the nose, and it's an absolute distraction. Don't be one of those guys. They've got the Weed Whacker that'll help you out with that, and then once you feel secure about how awesome these products are, you can feel a little more comfortable about heading south of the border and taking care of the unsightly rough that is hiding your balls. Take care of your rough, fellas. It's just the right thing to do. Head over to manscaped.com, use the promo code SERIOUS20, and you'll save 20% on all the products. Guys, don't forget, it's easier to see a giraffe on the plane than it is in the forest. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's really good. Well, hey, speaking of that, everybody, if you, dear listener, would like to be one of our Patreon subscribers, it's super easy. You just go over to patreon.com backslash surely podcast. That's S-U-R-E-L-Y podcast and for as little as five bucks a month number one you can become an executive producer of one of our episodes but number two you get to listen in to our super secret nobody knows it but our patreons episodes and we have just started doing that this past month in june and we're going to have a new one in july but we are covering the one hit wonders of the 80s and beyond that's right we did uh, the buggles video kid the radio star in our first one this month we're doing frankie goes to hollywood we're doing relax yeah and then we've got some exciting things that you can do the higher you go up in the scale so Check us out on Patreon.com. Sign up today. We got a new one, as a matter of fact, this week. Yeah, we, our executive producer for this particular episode is our newest Patreon member. His name is Chad Briggs. Chad, thank you for hitting us up. Thank you for the support. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Chad and I exchanged a few emails and I we came up with the idea for Tron versus War Games. I think that's going to be a fantastic one. The guy shows up and drops a great matchup right off the bat. Also, he mentioned, this is my, this is my <laughs> favorite part. He mentioned that the Swedish military crushes really hard on Dirty Dancing. I'm really curious to hear the, the story. Sweet- Swedish military. The Swedish military really, really likes Sturdy Dancing. I don't know how a movie targeting young teenage girls somehow ended up as a favorite of the, <laughs> the Swedish military, but that, that's If to be you the case. are in the Swedish military, <laughs> please hit us up on Facebook. Or the Swedish bikini swim team. <laughs> Either way. Either way. And guys, if you are not financially in the position to become one of our Patreon members, no problem. Just go over to whatever your favorite podcast app is and hit that five-star review for us. And if you want to leave a review that happens to mention a topic that we've talked about, we'll put you in a contest to win an awesome custom engraved Tumblr. James has one of those, I believe. And we have a new review that, Jason, why don't you read that one for us? Yeah, okay. So we got a five-star review from uh, our friend named MN. Guy 55. So MN Guy 55, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Facebook, send us an email at shirleypodcast at gmail.com and let us know who you are. That's right. If you're D's grandma, we definitely want to know that. <laughs> All right. So here's what it says five stars, childhood nostalgia at its best. 
This is a must subscribe for anyone who grew up in the 80s. It's such a great mix of music and film that it seems to touch on every weekend of my 1980s life. And those were the best times. All the episodes are home runs, even the ones that I'm not interested in at the outset. It's been great to go back and watch a lot of the movies discussed with my late teenage boys so that I get to share the best parts of my teenage years with them. I'm so glad that I found this podcast and I love sharing it with friends and then reminiscing with them each week. Number one, thank you, MN Guy 55 for that awesome review. And that actually is, that's how James hit us up. That's how he found us. We do PG-13 episodes that people can listen to with their teenage children. Hearing people being able to go back and listen and see stuff with their kids. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's what we want to do. Absolutely awesome. And James just mentioned he came to us through the Major League episode. Now, Major League, we did as a comparison to Bull Durham. Now, last week, we talked about the factors involved in the success of this White Snake album. And obviously, David Coverdale is one of them, yes, right? Of and obviously, John Sykes is one of them, yes. right? Yeah. But you've got some non-musicians that are key factors in this one. And Jason, you hit me with a nugget of wisdom that I thought was on point. Okay. So I called you last week and I said, listen, as we're breaking down the players involved in the White Snake rise to fame, uh-huh. I'm like, this is a retelling of Bull Durham. <laughs> you've got John Kalodner, who's clearly the coach, right? Okay. He's the coach. Uh-huh. You've got John Sykes, who's clearly Crash Davis. Yeah. He's the guy. He's in the trenches with him. He doesn't like him, but he's helping him make it to the big time. David Coverdale is Nuke Lelouch. You're saying that God reached his hand down and touched David Coverdale's voice. Is Absolutely. A hundred percent. And he's screwing around with his quadraphonic blah punk <laughs> and he needs some help <laughs> to get to the big time. Yeah. And so who do they get? They get Kalodner to help coach him. They get Sykes to help guide him. Mm-hmm. And his Annie Savoy in this whole deal is clearly the lovely Tawny Katane. Now, there's an interesting comparison. Susan Sarandon in a tight skirt versus Tawny Katane in a tight skirt. I don't know which way I'm going to vote on that one. That's, yep. a, that's a tough call. What do you think, James? Coverdale, Nuke Lelouch, Tawny Katane, Annie Savoy. Can you see it? I, I can see it. But are you saying Joe Boo can't help with a curveball? <laughs> <laughs> Just as a quick recap of our last episode, guys, if this is your first time listening, the lead up to this album is pretty incredible. They put together almost an entirely new band to make this album. John Sykes and David Coverdale get together. They write the album. They record the music, except for Coverdale. Doesn't record the vocals, and it goes on for two years without him recording the vocals, at which time Sykes is getting upset. The producer, Mike Stone, is getting upset, and there's a little bit of talk about maybe we need to find somebody else to sing this album. Well, obviously, that pisses David Coverdale off. And so he's ready to get rid of everybody. And I'm not going to say that he was a coward, but like, I'm pretty sure that the bass player and the drummer got their notice that they weren't going to be in the band anymore when they stopped getting checks. Yeah, exactly. They, of course, are now trying to hunt down new members of the band. John Sykes is the last one there. He knows what's going on, but he's overseas. Like, he's separate from them, but he's like, do I finish? Do I quit now? What do I do? He decides to push on through, but David Coverdale ultimately calls him and says, hey, sorry, dude, this isn't going to work out. Yeah. Well, here's something that I just found out. I didn't know. Found this out today. We mentioned John Kalodner putting together his new all-star band, the band that we all know as Whitesnake because we watched all of the videos back in the 80s when we were kids. That's the band that John Kalodner puts together. And one of the guys that he calls up is a guy named Adrian Vandenberg. Here's what I did not know. Adrian Vandenberg did the guitar solo for Here I Go Again on the album version. We talked about how none of those guys were actually playing on the album. That is not correct. 
Adrian Manenberg actually did the solo. So he shows up to John Kalodner's office and John Kalodner's like, okay, you got this band, but I also kind of am interested in having you play with White Snake. He's like, ooh, White Snake would be really great. And so he's like, well, I tell you what, there's a solo that John Sykes did for Here I Go Again sounds like metal country western. We need a new guitar solo. And so he sends Adrian Vandenberg over to the studio to put together a new solo for this song. And so Adrian Vandenberg is in there and he's bought this cheap Japanese Strat knockoff and he's noodling away in the studio trying to figure something out. All of a sudden he hears a commotion outside of his little studio recording area voices are starting to escalate and you know David Coverdale's got his studio voice on so it's super loud so he peeks out the door and sure enough John Sykes has flown back and is confronting <laughs> David Coverdale to his face about what the heck he and so Adrian Vandenberg slowly closes the door back again <laughs> goes back to his cheap Japanese knockoff Stratocaster with that cheap guitar while there is extreme fighting going on in the other room <laughs> he records one of the most memorable guitar solos in history great story man uh, by the way yeah i mean that's a fantastic story i don't want to kill that do you know why david coverdale could not sing why his shockers were jammed and he couldn't breathe out of his right <laughs> eyelid oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bring some fried chicken there you go before we get to track by track i just want to do a quick overview of this album James, did you own this album? Yeah, this was the summer between my junior and senior years in high school. You could not cruise the streets of North Louisiana without having a copy of this somewhere on board. <laughs> I actually saw White Snake with the video version of the band on tour that summer with Motley Crue, and they were mind-blowingly good. This was the Vivian Campbell, uh, Adrian Vandenberg, Tommy Aldridge, Rudy Sarzo version, and they were amazing. You told me that they blew Motley Crue off the stage. That was my impression. I mean, they were all such, these were all seasoned pros. Tommy Aldridge had been playing with people since Black Oak, Arkansas in the 70s. Rudy wow. Sarzo had been with Quiet Wright and Ozzy Osbourne in the Randy Rhodes years, as had Tommy Aldridge as well. So these were all pros in top form at the time. I told you that they played Oklahoma City in 1987, and the next night they played Shreveport. That's the show you saw, right? Live first, 1987, I think. Wow. They had the merchandise booth outside. They had a cool white snake shirt, had the logo on front, on the back, had all the tour dates. I had to have one. So I just told him my size, handed him my 20 bucks, and walked away a happy man. Didn't pay any attention. School starts, yeah, about a month and a half later. And I grab my white snake t shirt. For some reason, I hadn't worn it much during the summer. And I go to school, enjoying my day, you know, running my hands through my luxurious hair. <laughs> and then my principal, who was also a deacon at my church, and he's a wonderful, godly man, an inspiration to us all. <laughs> <laughs> he did not approve of my t-shirt because I hadn't realized that on the back above the tour dates, it said white snake, whip it out, wipe it off and slide it in again. <laughs> he decided that was not appropriate. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm not having a long sleeve shirt in my car. So here I am in late August wearing a long sleeve shirt over a black white snake. <laughs> Yeah, so that'll teach me to read t-shirts more closely before I buy them in the future. Uh, let me guess, that made it back to your mom. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she'll probably hear it again, be reminded of that and chew me out. But that's okay. I learned. I learned a lesson. So this album went eight times platinum in the US, 20 million worldwide. I mean, I've always called this album 1987. Well, that's what they called it in the UK. I mean, we got you had two different distributors for this album. In the US and Canada, you had Geffen Records, but it was EMI over in Europe. And so in Europe and in Australia, they called this album 1987. And in Japan, it's called Serpus. Albus. Yeah. That sounds you. like something you hear in the NC-17 Harry Potter movie. <laughs> <laughs> So not only did this album do amazing on the charts, but Slide It In, which hadn't been out. I mean, it came out in, what, 84? Yep. Just three years later, it went from gold to double platinum in 87 after the success of this album. I went back and bought it. Yeah. Well, and it's got some great stuff. I told you that my buddy on the bus let me listen to his Slide Uh It In. Yeah. So I took my lawn mowing money and bought 1987 and Slide It In. Nice. I tried to buy Slide It In. I was 14 at the time, but my mom did not approve of the title. So I tried to explain to her just you know, the mechanical act of putting the cassette in the player. But <laughs> once again, that did not fly. So, oh, but I love that. I love that album. That was my first exposure to White Snake. Uh-huh. I remember the video for Slow and Easy on Friday night videos. I'd already started wanting to play drums because of Stuart Copeland, but the second I saw Cozy Powell's fist catch that drumstick in the video and start playing that big, oh uh, yeah, that I was hooked. So, but when this album came out in 87, I, I was primed, and I, but I didn't anticipate how much I was going to love it. Still do, as a matter of fact. For those of you who don't have the benefit of seeing James right now, he's literally has his drumsticks in his hands. <laughs> It's a little security blanket for you while we record the podcast, I'm guessing. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> this album never hit number one, but just listen to this history of the, the Billboard Hot 200, okay? So it reached number two on June 13th, 1987, just after my 14th birthday. Can I interrupt? Yes. So at that point, when it hit number two in yep. June, here is here are the ones that were behind it. You 2 is in the number one spot with Joshua Tree. Right. Okay. But just as an idea of how prevalent glam, hair metal, rock was at that moment, number two is White Snake, 1987. Number three is Girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue. Uh-huh. Number four is Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. Number five is Look What the Cat Dragged In by Poison. And number six is Ozzy Osbourne and Randy Rhodes Tribute. I mean, it was the summer of hair metal. And it was awesome. <laughs> That sounds like a Shirley Showcase list right there. I'm trying to think, in, in that period of time, you could see those guys in concert. I mean, in Shreveport, I've seen Whitesnake, Motley Crue, Poison, David Lee Ross, Cinderella. Man, you, you will never have a time like that again, I don't think. So listen to this. So they hit number two, June 13, 1987. They were blocked by the Joshua Tree U2. If you remember, we've done the track by track on that. Go back and listen to that. And then just listen as we go through 1987. The next week, they are number two. Then number four. That's the week that Whitney Houston hits number one with her second album mm-hmm. that blocks Girls, 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 and White Snake for that matter. Yeah. The Nikki Six swears they outsold Whitney Houston's album, but they got the shaft by the record company. Cook the books. We'll talk about that next week. So this is their chart history. Two, two, four. Four, five, three, four, three, 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 two, three blocked by La Bamba. Two, three, four, two, four, four, three. Week after week after week, they're in the top five, top five, top five, top five. They don't fall to number six until January of 1988. Wow. That is a crap ton of albums that they're selling. Wow. Albums come and go, but this stayed in the top five for nearly a year. Okay. Are we ready to go track by track? More than ready. ready, gentlemen. Okay. The first song, Out of the Gate, is incredible. It's a song called 
crying in the ring. Dave's wailing on the drums on this one, man. Okay, um, this album, I consider this one of the best recorded rock drum performances of the 80s. And this track, I think, has probably Ainsley Dunbar's best performance on the album. It's amazing, from just from a drumming perspective. But on top of that, you've got Sykes shredding away like nobody's business. David Boyce wailing in top form. Just an amazing song. Now, this song was one of the songs that came from an old album right this is this is one from back in their blues days this is saints and sinners yeah and when i when i listen to this song i'm like i can tell the blues like this is that this is that bluesy da 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 it's that call and answer that you get with the blues but they gear up the music and they've got that guitar sound i didn't know this until today either the guitar sound that john sykes has on this album he got from mr bob rock Bob Rock came over and programmed his equipment in order to get him this totally killer sound. So you've got this bluesy riff and this bluesy vocal, but then after that starts, you've got an almost Black Sabbath-like riff. That goes along with it. So you've got Blues and heavy metal jammed together with a voice like Robert Plant, and you're just like, holy cow, I got a good album today. This is one of those that John Kaladner's like, this is a great song. It's not produced well. It's not played well. Do it right and put it on this album. And David Coverdale resisted that at first. Yeah. And finally, when they talked him into Crying in the Rain, he's like, well, crap, if I'm going to do Crying in the Rain, then let's do Here I Go Again as well. And uh, was that inspired or what? My goodness. Yep. Greatest decision of the album, for sure. The funny thing to me is that John Sykes hated blues, right? Yeah. And Correct. so he made this blues song into a rocker. You know, John started off playing with a new wave of a British heavy metal band called Tigers of Pentang. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had more of a motorhead riffy vibe going. Then he went into Thin Lizzy. If you listen to Thin Lizzy's Thunder and Lightning album, it's the heaviest album in the band's career. And that all goes back to Sykes. So he was primed for this, man. He really was. You know who they wanted to have in Thin Lizzy before they ended up hiring John Sykes? Adrian Vandenberg. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's great. D, you mentioned Black Sabbath. Yeah. Funny connection, even though it's it's not really relevant. Ainsley Dunbar in the late 60s had a band called Ainsley's Dunbar's Retaliation. Oh, and wow. On the very first Sabbath album, they, have, uh, they cover a song by Retaliation called Warning. So Ainsley's roots, man, he goes way back. The solo section of the song just amazes me every time I listen to it. Sykes starts off in overdrive and then takes it up a gear by the end. It's just amazing. Will you all let me geek out for a second? 
Yeah, that's go what for it, we man. do here, man. That's our specialty. It's why we're back in the '80s. A lot of the drummers you saw for the mainstream pop metal bands would have two bass drums up on stage, but they didn't really play them. They were there for show, maybe big solos. But all throughout this album, which was a pretty mainstream rock album, Ainsley Dunbar is playing double bass in all kinds of places. And he's not a traditional double bass player. And for the non-geeky, double bass is when they're playing the bass drum with each foot. That da 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 And Ainsley is all over the place. He was not traditionally known as a double bass drum player, but he really upped his game for this album. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. It is absolutely blistering speed. And I got to give it up to David Coverdale. He almost tops it at the end with the wailing scream that he has. Oh, yeah. The song finishes out. It is, it is a great great song hey i've got a theory okay i've got a theory and i have seen absolutely nothing that backs this theory up but here's my thought okay crying in the rain was first written and laid down in 1982 and the album talks about no one can see the tears when you're crying in the rain right does that ring a bell to you does that sound familiar it's got to be from Blade Runner. Blade Runner had come out that year. There is an epic speech at the end of the movie, The Life Passes By Like Tears in the Rain by Mr. Rutger Hauer. Yep. And I have no doubt that that's where this lyric came from. <sighs> Good call. As far as an opening track, this ranks among the best ever. It's hard to beat this as far as setting the tone for the album. Coverdale's killing it right off the, that Black Hat Moans part. Woo! Oh my gosh. Go back and listen. If you listen to the Saints and Sinners version, it sounds almost lethargic compared to this one. It's true. Yeah. Claudner knew what he was doing when he re-recorded this, reproduced it. Absolutely. Okay. Moving on to the next song on the album. This song is called Bad Boys. I think John Sykes thought, man, if anybody thinks this is going to be a blues album after that first song, I'm going to put it to rest on the second. <laughs> I mean, this definitely keeps the momentum going. It's got that one of those fist-pumping rabble-rousers that this band seemed to excel in. Oh, dude, this is a balls-to-the-wall rocker, blistering right out of the gate, and I love the wolf howl at the beginning, right? That's kind of the, the hook on this one. That oh, 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 oh. He tried it again on Kitten's Got Claws on the next album, and it just yeah. wasn't quite as cool. That's not as good of a song either, but I love it. In fact, James, I was going to ask you, the thing that stands out to me the most on this one is the cymbals. Oh, yeah, he's bashing away like a madman. You know, Tommy Aldridge, who joined after David sacked the band, I read an old Modern Drummer interview with him yesterday. I was trying to go back to those days. He said that when he joined the band and listened to it, you know, Tommy is a well-known heavy player. He beats the heck out of his cymbals, drums, destroys them all. He said that when he heard the drum parts that Ainsley had recorded, they sounded like what he himself would have recorded. He said David Coverdale later came along and told him that, you know, when I told Ainsley to record the drum parts, I told him to have you in mind. So he was already in that Tommy Aldridge mindset which involves lots of bashing on cymbals and banging on drums which you know i'm for any day of the week tommy aldridge you mentioned that he's got that uh, that mystical afro that uh, gives him his power right <laughs> i can't explain it i saw him in 1987 and he was an absolute madman saw him again about six years ago at the hard rock down in biloxi still playing with white snake still playing a lot of the same songs the afro had a little gray in it 
But he uh-huh. was still playing like animal on speed, man. It was amazing. <laughs> Not missed a step. I heard David Coverdale talk about this song, and he feels like this song incorporated a lot of elements of Thin Lizzy. I mean, Coverdale, for as much as he sort of hated Sykes, <laughs> gives him a lot of credit. You know, he gives him a lot of credit on this album. I saw him live once. I didn't see him with Whitesnake. But in 1989, Bon Jovi came through Monroe. And opening was a band called Blue Murder, yeah. which is what Sykes went on to form after he left Whitesnake. It was him and Tony Franklin and Carmine Apice. And I tell you, man, they were amazing. They peeled the paint off the walls of that place. I'm really surprised that John Sykes hasn't had more music come out since this time. I heard an Eddie Trunk interview with Adrian Vandenberg. Eddie Trunk said he'd heard an album that probably eight years ago that is phenomenal, but it's just never been released. They just won't release it. I don't know what the problem is, but Sykes is too skilled a musician not to have more music out there for us. There was a band came out a few years ago called the Winery Dogs, and it had Billy Sheehan on bass, Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater on drums, and a guy named Richie Kotzen on vocals and guitar. I think it was on Eddie Trunk one night where Mike Portnoy said that this was originally conceived as a project for Sykes, and but he just never showed up. So there you go. Wow. So Bad Boys seems like a really great live song. I've heard that some shows they open with a medley of this and uh, Children of the Night. Yeah. So, you know, their drummer's feet are going to be really tired by the end of the <laughs> Really keeps the momentum going from that first track. There's no let up in sight. Okay. Let's get to one of the one of the heaviest hitters on the album. This song's called Still the Night. <laughs> oh wait, sorry. <laughs> Okay, this song blows my freaking doors off, as Jason would say. It blows my skirt up, it blows my socks off, it blows (laughs) powder up my nose, whatever you want to say. This song does that. And there almost instantly were haters out there who were like, this is just a Led Zeppelin knockoff. Listen, I love Led Zeppelin, but this is not a Led Zeppelin song. They did a lot of borrowing of ideas, but we freaking talked about Bon Jovi, where Richie Sambora and John sat on a box of tapes, picking out their favorite songs, going, how can we steal something from this? Right. And so you called me and you're like, hey, I've heard there's a lot of Led Zeppelin, like this is a Led Zeppelin knockoff. What do you think? Well, I hear it. Like the, the beginning of the song, the intro of the song, you've got the call and answer that is very much like Black Dog. I'm not even a Zeppelin expert, and I could say, okay, I can hear that. But they do it in eight bars instead of four, okay? It's it's a little different makeup, and it's a totally different riff. Then you've got this incredible break in the song. It's like just a couple minutes in, and it goes to just the tink, tink. What's that that sound, James? What's the tink, tink, tink that we hear in that break? Uh, Playing on a a hi-hat and a ride cymbal. Playing in between those two. And I bet that you can confirm that that's basically exactly what Led Zeppelin does when it does its break in Whole Lot of Love. Oh, yeah, it's a similar thing. They've borrowed these beautiful little bits, and then, of course, he's like, ooh, baby, which sounds like it came <laughs> comes right out of Robert Plant's mouth on Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. And then, I, I love in the video, I don't even think they did this in the song, but in the video... I, th- I don't. I think it was Adrian Vandenberg is playing the guitar with the violin bow, which I mean that is Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page is the guy who did that. It's the dazed and confused thing. 
but I don't think they actually did it for the recording of the song. They're just playing it on the synthesizer, and it was just a synthesized violin, but they made it look like a, a bow on a guitar. That part is so freaking awesome. In the middle of the song, that... Very cashmere. Very, oh, it is very, very cashmere. But this song, you can say it's a knockoff, but I mean, don't listen to Greta Van Fleet, if you will, please. That's a knockoff. <laughs> this this is taking some ideas that Zeppelin had in some incredible songs and making a fantastic song out of it. It's a riff for the ages. I mean, the riff itself almost sounds a little serpentine like a snake. I understand the Zeppelin comparisons, but Plant and Coverdale are contemporaries. They both came up probably the same blues rock background. So obviously they would draw from the same sources. I'm like you, D. I just don't see this being a blatant ripoff. Yeah, some of the same influences and ideas, but I used to get angry when people would call him David Cover version, like the man had never contributed anything himself. No, the man had a history going back as far as Zeppelin's. That's the guy who did that. He's the one who's like David Cover version. I thought that was really uncool. David Cover did recorded songs like Soldier of Fortune by Deep Purple, which Plant wishes he could sing that well. But anyway. Plant may do that, but Plant is a bit of a prima donna himself. And as far as judgment goes, Jimmy Page thought he was good enough to do a combination and a tour with him. So I'm going to say probably okay. He probably did all right. Yeah, I had the Coverdale Page album in 93. I love that album. Yeah, and when they, when they asked David Coverdale about, you know, isn't this just like another Led Zeppelin song? And he goes, I don't know, but that's a pretty good category to be in. I was in a band before my current band and we played this song. Yeah. Every time we played it, I got so excited for the big drum fills leading into the last chorus. Those are classics, man. I never get tired of listening to that or air drumming to that. (laughs) Coverdale said that this was inspired by Jailhouse Rock and a song called Rice Pudding by Jeff Beck. Another Eddie Trunk interview I heard, Coverdale said that he was going through a box of stuff at his his mother's attic. He found an old cassette with the basic riff idea from Still of the Night that he worked on with Richie Blackmore, of all people. Uh Uh-huh. He did say that he had kind of a jailhouse rock idea, so then I gave it to John, and John took it to another cosmic level, I believe he said. That's fantastic. Okay, so just just to be clear about what you just said, if I understand that right, Still the Night was based on a demo tape that David Coverdale did back in the 70s when he was with Whitesnake with the amazing, mind-blowing talent of Richie Blackmore. even earlier than that you know because coverdale sang with her for a while so i think it's probably even earlier than that wow the history of this song is really interesting they had a demo for this in 1985 this is the song that they wrote in the south of france right off the bat like they had this initially in spring of 1985 we didn't get this until two years later because he couldn't sing this song right and when he sat down when they finally got him keith olsen says sit down and let's just give it a try he said okay i'll try it let's see how it goes He did it twice. They patched those two together, and that's what you get. Two times through, and you get the blistering vocals of Still Open. I'll tell you guys, there was something that Coverdale's voice on this album. I've gone back and listened to earlier stuff. 
I don't know if the sinus infection or whatever did something to his voice, but it had a raspier edge on this album that I really liked. It really seemed to fit the material. Yeah, well, he went through three different producers to finally get the right sound. <laughs> <laughs> and changed locations to the Bahamas, too. Yeah, well, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. When Coverdale talks about Sykes, he really does have some fond memories of making this album with him. I thought this quote was kind of neat and kind of sad at the same time. He said, John's playing and soloing on the 1987 album is truly landmark stuff and so influential to a lot of people. I hope he's very proud of it because I am. They made this incredible album together and they can't even be in the same room, can't talk, can't celebrate together. They can't even give each other a high five on this album. Okay, we got to talk about the video. This is the video that Marty Colner comes up with this video. They film it. He looks at him. He says, these guys don't know each other. We need another day of shooting. I need 35 grand to intercut some interesting stuff. Claudia Schiffer backs out. Tawny Katain walks in the door and he's like, oh my gosh, you are the answer to our prayers. You are the video vixen for this. She says, okay, let's do this. He calls Geffen and they say, tell Coverdale to go screw himself. I'm not giving you another dime. And so Marty Colner talked to his wife and his wife said, if you believe even these guys then let's loan them the money and so he used his own personal money to finish the still of the night video used honey contain and this caused the album to sell a million copies in 10 days yeah i can tell that it's different like uh, he, sh he shot the Tony Katain part in 16 millimeter. And if you look at it, you can tell that that part is not as crisp and clear as the onstage presence. I really, really love the big circle with David Coverdale leaning back like yes. Neo on the Matrix with his mic stand. It's, it is an amazing touch. But day one, they had a plan. They had it storyboarded out. This is what we're going to do. Day two, Marty Kullner had this style that he called jazz where instead of having it all planned out, they just kind of riffed. They just made up stuff. All that Tawny Katane footage, that's what you get. Yeah. I mean, you can tell when you look at it, she's so beautiful that it just bypasses all logic. He's like, look at me with your sunglasses on and then rip them off real quick. <laughs> Who cares? I'm in, yeah. right? Look at me. I'm blindfold here at the end. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sit over there and I'm going to squirt some water on you. So in our last episode, we talked about how this video led to their success because it ended up in the lap of Sam Kaiser, who was the MTV executive at that point that made it the hip clip of the week. It was all because Marty Kullner made the sacrifice, put his own money in to make this video. And as we know, he made two more videos for him on this album as well. And those were made on the cheap too. They were all cheaply done videos. It was all with Marty Kullner's basically charity to help them. Now we talk about the success that this album had. And as a result, you know, David Coverdale went from $3 million in debt to mega wealthy. And he gave each of his band members a $400,000 bonus. <laughs> now, not the guys who recorded the album, but the new band members. They're the ones that got the $400,000 bonus. So right around Christmas time, they show up to Marty Kallner's house. Marty Kallner is talking to his wife, you know, because they've said, hey, we're going to come over. And he's like, this is it. This is where we're going to get our bonus for helping him out, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, what do you think it's going to be? And they both talk to each other and they kind of agreed it's going to be a million dollars. He's going to give us a check for a million dollars. And so they walk in. It's around Christmas time. He hands him a present. He says, please, just don't open this until after <laughs> 
don't open this until after we're gone. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so good. He's embarrassed at how good it is. Uh, so they hang out for a little while. Then David Coverdale and Tawny Katane leave. And as they're walking out the door, the Still of the Night video is on TV playing. And so it's just like it's still right there on the airwaves, right there out on the front. They walk out the door. Marty and his wife open up the present. And it is a framed poorly shot picture of David Coverdale and Tawny Katane. <laughs> and they're like, maybe oh. the check is behind the picture. And so they tear off the back of the picture. They're looking in the frame and literally nothing, no money, no nothing for the guy that made them. That I mean, made with, them without him, there is no white snake. And so the rest of the story is he got it all back when he shot videos for their next album. That's right. They were going to shoot their next video, which he was charging them a million dollars a piece for in order to get his money back. He and David were on less good terms at that point. And then David got upset because he said, I heard that you were shooting a Kiss video yesterday. Don't you understand that we are the band of the 80s? Why are you shooting a Kiss video? And Marty Collner said, oh, you're the band of the 80s? Well, it's 1989, David. What are you going to do next year? Yikes. All right. By the way, in the still of the night video, you have the cool circle, which it looks like he's a cat on the fence singing against the moon. It's like the bat signal. It's like the bat signal. You have the first appearance of the white jaguar in that video. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, like as the song is closing, I don't know why this always tickles me, but David Coverdale is arrested and like thrown into the back of the van. And when the doors shut, it says sex police. <laughs> He's arrested by the sex police. And when I was a kid, I was like, uh, I hope I never get arrested by the sex police. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a good thing. That would be an interesting version of a penal code. VH1 <laughs> ranked this as the 27th best hard rock song of all time. It's fantastic. One of the best. I, I, I'm going to put this at number two. This is my number two favorite song on the whole album. Okay. Yeah. They're with you. That's fair. So speaking of greatest songs of all time, we're on to song number four. This song is called Here I Go Again. I was in a couple of bands. In one band, we did Love Ain't No Stranger and Slow and Easy, and my God, that was fun. Yeah. You know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that was such a blast. And then another band, we did Here I Go Again and Still of the Night. This would have been in the early 2010s, and people were still loving these songs. I was remembering back in high school, man, all the girls at my school, a lot of them tried to get the Tony hair, like after that summer. Yeah. And I was totally okay with that. Okay. The first part of this song is like you're at Church on the Moon. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like it's like an aura of beautiful, warm light is surrounding your body, and you have the reverence you might have before the religious leaders. The Lord Almighty. The Lord it's Almighty. like the sun shining. It's like the gospel, man. Yeah.
I love it. I, this song for me is totally equated to the summer of 87. When you say summer of 1987, I say, here I go. I hear that music, that beginning keyboard intro. I immediately imagine Tawny Katane doing a cartwheel on top of a black and white Jaguar. Yes. yes. As one should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is power ballad royalty. I mean, this is the song so nice they had to record it thrice. Thrice. Yeah. So the original version of this song came out, like we said, in 82 on the Saints and Sinners album. With that one, you had John Lord playing the beginning organ, and it sounded like you were in a church in small town Oklahoma, as opposed to on the moon. And this is, again, another one he did with Bernie Marston back then, like Crying in the Rain. Let's listen to that 1982 version right here. Okay. Okay, it's a great song, but it was played masterfully in 1987. They took a good song and said, you know what, let's polish this up and make it great. John Claudner hit the nail on the head. This is a hit song. You just didn't play it right. You didn't do you it didn't right. didn't record it right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, they bumped up the BPMs just a little bit, gave it just a bit more drive. Because the original, it feels a little plodding almost. It is a great song. But you look what they did to this in 1987 compared to that one. There really is no comparison. And then, of course, we, we have a key lyric change. Instead of, <laughs> instead of the old lyric, we say, like a drifter, I was born to walk alone. What was the, what was the original lyric? Like, like a, a hobo. hobo. What'd you call me? <laughs> <laughs> and I believe that was Lord Coverdale's exact concern. Yeah, he did not want to, any misinterpretation of what he was saying there. And so we we changed it to Drifter, which is a much better. I, it's fine with me. Yeah. So then we have even a third version of this song. radio edit if you will that's the version that actually topped the charts it wasn't the video version although we know that i mean if you grew up in 1987 you heard as much from that video version as you did from the radio version absolutely not more i call this one the casey Kasem version because it was on the radio it was played as a single it reached number one and it's not even the best version of the song. Well, he assembled an interesting crew for this one. On drums, he had Denny Carmacy, you know, from Heart. Yes. Montrose. Yeah. And he had David Coverdale singing, obviously. And on guitar, he had someone near and dear to Jason's heart. Yes. <laughs> Dan Huff from how, Giants. How does Dan Huff keep coming up? Okay, wait. How does wait. that happen? Dan Huff was the lead man for Giant, who had one great song uh, in 1990 called I'll See You in My Dreams. I'm playing it right Please here play for it. the third Stop. freaking time. Don't. Here it is. I'll See You in My Dreams. Oh, I'll see you in my dreams. 
that song is awesome. Oh, it's gosh. incredible. Oh, Dan God. Huff making another appearance. He actually played the guitar on Danger Zone. Yeah, that's how he, he was involved with a lot of. He's done a lot of production and songwriting in the country music industry, and he's been involved with a lot of Christian rock bands. Yeah, the man's all over the place. He's got a great voice, man. Yeah, he actually produced an album for uh, Taylor Swift. You know that? I did not know that. Boom! Blew your mind on Dan Huff. When we do Taylor Swift, <laughs> I'm going to play "I'll See You in My Dreams Again." This song hit number one October 10th, 1987. And here's the thing that really is interesting to me. So when I'm a, so I'm a freshman in 1987, I didn't know that this song was on Saints and Sinners five years before. So in my Spanish book, when we get to the music section, it shows the top 10 list and there's Here I Go Again. I'm looking at it in the fall of 87. I'm like, how did my Spanish book know that Here I Go Again was going to be a top 10 hit? <laughs> As a freshman, it blew me away. Madre de Dios. <laughs> so we mentioned in our last episode that Tony Katane did not drink. That was her little deal. Like she was like, I don't drink, so I'm not going to join you for a drink. But then David Coverdale won her affection by asking her for a spot of tea. But <laughs> Tony Katane had some other demons that she was fighting. She loved the cocaine. <laughs> What, what year was it that she was married to Chuck Finley? Late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. We we're talking about, just to bring it back to Major League, we're talking about the pitcher for the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> That's right. But they made his theme song, not Wild Thing, but something else. <laughs> so Tony Katane and Chuck Finley were riding in a car together, mm -hmm. and they are having a fight. This is when he's an active baseball pitcher. Mm -hmm. And she decides that she didn't like his smart mouth. Mm -hmm. So she's wearing stilettos and decides to kick him so hard that it puts him on the disabled list. So when he finally comes back and takes the mound uh -huh. in Chicago, Chicago White Sox against the White Sox, the broadcast guy plays Here I Go Again. <laughs> <laughs> he got fired, by the way. That yeah, guy got he did. fired. He yeah. didn't make it to the next game. I would have given him a promotion, but yeah. <laughs> I just realized that I only, I'm separated by White Snake from four degrees. Right. I have an old sports writer buddy used to interview Chuck all the time, and Chuck was married to Tony. So, hey, four degrees from David Coverdale. There you go. There you go. Okay. And and Tommy Lee, if you want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nikki Six talks about this, how Tommy Lee used to bang Tony Katane. You can't say bang on the radio. Bang. He used to bang her brains out, right? They used to shoot up together, which is hilarious that she doesn't drink but loves drink. cocaine. Well, it's like you talk vanity and Nikki Six. She'd yell at him for drinking a Coca-Cola, and then they'd be shooting heroin 30 uh, minutes later. Yeah, it's the logic. <laughs> but Molly Crew and White Snake toured together in 1987, and there's you know the queen of rock and roll, Tony Katane, was with this guy. Now with this guy, no problem, I guess. I do think it's interesting though that Molly Crew did not like White Snake. They thought they were. Wait a minute! It just occurred to me, White Snake was hired to open for Motley Crue, but as it turns out, Tommy Lee opened for David Coverdale. <laughs> 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 I listened to the Heroin Diaries by Nikki Six, right? They thought White Snake was uptight and not cool and not willing to party and not willing to burn down the, the hotel. And anytime they invited him to go do anything, they were Vivian Campbell turned him down one time because he had to practice. And Nikki Six was like, Practice? What are you talking about? Practice. <laughs> On the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, Nikki Six invited Robin Crosby to come and check out the, the concert. 
who and Robin Crosby opened for Tommy Lee. <laughs> Robin Crosby used to bang Donna Gatane yeah. before Tommy Lee. Well, Robin Crosby was great friends with Nikki Six, and when he came, he Robin Crosby's like, man, White Snake is killing it. They're <laughs> awesome. And Nikki Six is like, man, screw you. They're not that good. He's like, oh crap, they're killing it. <laughs> and so that caused Nikki Six to sort of be like, ah, man, I don't like these guys. They were killing them on stage, and you even you even back that up. Oh, they were amazing. Let's talk about the video. So the video opens with Marty Colner's Black Jaguar, mm -hmm. David Coverdale's White Jaguar that had broken down a couple of years before. She's now up there in a white dress. Mm -hmm. They called in Paula Abdul to choreograph Tani Gatane. Paula Abdul, yes, that Paula Abdul, shows up and says, Straight up. Straight up, cold-hearted. And she says, well, show me what you can do. Well, Tony Contain grew up a gymnast. And a dancer. And a dancer. And she says, well, check this out. Cartwheel, walkover, splits. Paul Abdul's like, I'm out of here, guys. You don't need me for this. She's got it. And that video with Tony Contain on the hood of the Jaguars is maybe one of the most iconic video images of the 80s. No argument. I can remember at 13 years old, my buddy sitting next to me and we're watching MTV. He's like... Get ready. She's going to look at me. Get ready. She's going to look at me. And she comes out of that car window, looks right at us. Uh, she's, like, she's looking at me. Kind of like how Susanna Hoffs always looked at me in the video for a walk like an Egyptian. That's another story. Oh, that's, that's a good one, too. You did it right. You think there was any increase in sales for Jaguars after that video? Yes. Sure. I think so. Yeah, and blue power suits, probably. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a blue power suit myself these days. <laughs> All right. Now, listen. Six months after the release of the Here I Go Again video, MTV calls Marty Colner out of the blue and says, Marty, we have analyzed this frame by frame, and you can see Tony Katane's nipple. <laughs> and Marty Colner's like, guys, it's been six months. Everybody has seen her nipple already. <laughs> He's like, is it really worth the time, the money, and the effort to cut it down? And they said, yes. Yeah. So the question is, have you guys seen the original version with the nip slip? I actually have a memory of this from the time because the rumor, you know, it had been out for maybe three months, four months, and the rumor started to go around. I'm yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Guys, I think you can actually see it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. And so I think that the first time that I tried to watch it, is the edited version oh. because I was like, dude, I told you no nipple. <laughs> I have paused every second of this video. <laughs> I got my VHS tape. I recorded it. I've adjusted the tracking. I can't see anything. Ah, the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys heard the Bowling for Soup song called 1985? Yes. <laughs> and we heard it. I sent the video to you guys I know, today. I, just, I know. What happened to her plan? She was going to be an actress. She was going to be a star. She was going to shake her ass on the hood of White Snake's car. Her yellow SUV is now... Yeah, so this popped up a little Patrick Swayze-esque debate for about two seconds, and then we put it to rest pretty quickly. <laughs> because we had a text exchange where I had read on song songfacts.com that Connie Katane was in the Bowling for Soup video 1985, which is, I mean, the whole video, it came out in the early 2000, 2001 or two or something like that. Right. 
And the whole video is all a throwback to 80s royalty rock, right? You got Robert Palmer, you've got Molly Crew, you've got Run, Run DMC. DMC, you got all those guys, right? And there's a lady across the street who, with my low resolution video on my phone, looks very much like Tawny Katane. So I was like, yes, Tawny Katane. And then there was talk about the wife and the housewife. And I said, you guys realize this is Tawny Katane. And Jason says, no, this is somebody named Joey House. Joey House. And I said, what? And I went and looked at IMDb, and sure enough, that's the list. So, a little bit of research. I have to agree with Jason. That is not Tawny Katane. On the radio. But man, she is a lookalike. She looks close. In fact, one of her IMDb credits, she was in a movie. A quote-unquote movie. One of those late nights that we used to watch on Cinemax <laughs> called uh, Diary of a Sex Addict. Yeah, what was her character's name? Her in character's that? name was Tawny. yeah i think a lot of people probably saw the similarity there but the 1985 video ends with ms joey house dancing uh, rather scantily clad on the hood of a car yes it's iconic yeah when the fall of 87 hits every school dance this this song got played yeah, everyone attended absolutely 100 so we mentioned that this song was an early song this one sounds like a self-driven, I'm going to go pull myself up by my own bootstraps song. And it turns out it's not what it's about at all. David Coverdale wrote this back in the 70s, came up with the lyrics when he was going through marital troubles with his wife at the time, Julia Borkowski. I like it better as the, I'm going to pull myself up my, by my own bootstraps. Me too. Frank the Tank. Let's rock and roll. And this <laughs> Frank, thing <down>. tank. <laughs> Frank the Tank. This song was featured in 2016 on a Walmart back-to-school commercial. That's sad. Let's not talk about that. (laughs) All right. Moving on? Yeah, but I was thinking in this case, maybe we should hit the eject button, take the cassette tape, turn it around, and slide it in again. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. So this is the first song on side two, Give Me All Your Love. Okay, this song makes me feel like a dog without a bone. <laughs> Very reminiscent of earlier White Snake stuff, the kind of shuffle boogie woogie number, but with a more modern production and better playing. You can answer me on this one. It sounds like he's hitting those drums really, really hard. Yeah, a lot of that was the 80s production. You know, they had so much reverb and all on the snare drums. They sounded like they were monstrous. So give me all. You know, the production of this whole album is amazing. You listen to it with good quality headphones. The guitars are massive. David Coverdale's voice is astounding, and the drums just sound huge. Yeah. And it's really evident on this song. This was released February of 1988, so we're moving all the way through 87. We're now into 88. This reached number 48 on the Hot 100 and number 22 on the rock charts. This one, to me, is more finger-snapping than headbanging. 
great lead off to the second side. The original album version, John Sykes played an amazing guitar solo. Right. But for some reason, on the single, Vivian Campbell recorded a different solo for the single for this song. Which, I mean, I think that's the only thing Vivian ever actually recorded with White Snake in his tenure with the band. That's exactly right. Yeah. So Vivian Campbell left the band after this tour, and his alleged reason was because he had musical differences and there was a little bit of talk about how Adrian Vandenberg wanted it to be just a one guitar band but I think the real reason is that Tawny Katane hated Vivian Campbell's wife and had her banned from the recording studio. <laughs> As Jason puts it, you don't mess with the Queen Bee. You don't mess with the Queen. You got to know your place. You remember the video for this one? I do. It was like a live concert one, right? No Tony. And I just, I still laugh thinking about it because every time it flashes to Rudy Sarzo, he's licking his bass. <laughs> this was obviously the pre-COVID era, but I mean, every time he's licking it. That bass lick, I remember in one of the videos, they cut to David Coverdale licking Tony Katane's leg. <laughs> they like the slip of the tongue, you know. Right. You did mention it, though. No Tony Katane in this video. Just, it was a fairly just a straight performance per video. You had Adrian Vandenberg standing back there being tall and Dutch. <laughs> 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 And Tommy back there shaking his afro. So yeah, it was it was a different approach as far as their videos went. It did not perform as well as the ones that had Tony Katane in it. That's very true. Did not. And it's a great song. So I, there, she's definitely a key ingredient. And we were talking about how much influence she had. She made the call on who was going to be manager for the band. Like David Geffen wanted Doc McGee to be the band. And oh. she said, no, I want Howard Kaufman. And David Geffen stands up at his desk and puts both his hands on his desk and says, no, it's going to be Doc McGee. And she stands up on the other side, puts her hands on the desk and says, no, it's going to be Howard Kaufman. Yeah. And she won that freaking battle. How do you beat David Geffen in a call on who's managing the biggest band that you have on the label? And this is a woman who did a walkover on the hood of a car. <laughs> impressive yeah vivian campbell if you look at he had kind of a similar background to john sykes he came from a band called sweet savage who were kind of a, one of those new wave of british heavy metal bands i think metallica covered one of their songs at one point then he went to dio so you know he had the heavy sabbath type riffs then there was the brief stay in white snake and after that i i think he did okay for himself don't y'all think yeah. he landed on his feet in def leppard my gosh yeah how many years has it been i think he joined leopard in 92 yeah wow so, he replaced Steve Clark. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. It's interesting, you know, like we said, they didn't write the solos to these songs. They had to make them their own. And I mean, obviously, we're talking about two of the most proficient guitar players of the day at that time. But Adrian Vandenberg said it was actually pretty agreeable. They just said, you want to do the solo on this one or you want me to do it? And <laughs> they're just like, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do the other one. There yeah. you go. And it was that easy. That's cool. I mean, it's, it's great whenever guys who have that much skill and ability can be humble and just say, you take this one, I'll take the next one. Yeah. Okay. Next song in the album is another major, beautiful rock ballad called Is This Love? So we mentioned in our Top Gun soundtrack episode that Kenny Loggins sang Danger Zone in the tone of Tina Turner. Because in 1985, Tina Turner was on absolute fire. Huge. She was huge. And she was everywhere. And somebody came to David Coverdale and said, hey, 
would you write a song for Tina Turner? Oh, I would love to do that. So he and John Sykes are together writing this album in the south of France. And he starts kind of humming and singing the song. And John Sykes comes over. and He's like, what is this? What are you doing? He's like, well, I'm trying to write this song for Tina Turner. And Sykes is like, cool. I'll help and sits down and they work together. And it's this beautiful moment where they're just playing off of each other and they create this incredibly beautiful song and they take it to David Geffen. And he says, what is this? And they're like, this is the song we wrote for Tina Turner. It's a Tina Turner song. He goes, no, this is a white snake song. Is this And that's how it ends up on the album. That's fantastic. A song written for Tina Turner. And this is one of the biggest hits on the album. This reached number two in December of 87, blocked only by George Michael's Faith at number one. Ah. <laughs> Just a throwback. I didn't realize how many 87 albums that we've covered. But we covered Faith by mm -hmm. George Michael. It was against NXS, which also came out in 87. We mentioned that U2, Joshua Tree, we covered that one. Yep. It was number one and held out White Snake. Whenever this album came out, it debuted at number eight. And Joshua Tree was at the number four position. At the number eight position was Sign of the Times by Prince, which we covered as well. 87 was a miraculous year for music. Yeah, there's just something about David Coverdale's voice that really lends itself to these ballads. If it was some other band trying to save this i mean these lyrics would probably be incredibly cheesy if say it was warrant for somebody trying to sing it this is on the makeout list of 87 <laughs> and 88 agreed i can't wait to see you again so i can hold you in my arms is this love that i'm feeling is this the love <laughs> there's a lot of slow dancing to this song oh my sure. gosh this I read an interview with Coverdale. He said that you know they were in the south of France, and I guess there was some tension with him and Sykes already. <laughs> said that he kept daylight hours, and Sykes kept what he called owl hours. <laughs> said, but this is one of those rare occasions where they passed, where David was coming to the studio, and John was leaving. And like D said, he asked, what are you working on there? He said, that's a new song. And said Sykes jumped into it feet first. That's awesome. This song reached number 38 on the adult contemporary chart. 2015, Classic Rock Magazine ranked it as the number seven song on the power ballad list. Greatest power oh, it clearly belongs in the top power ballads. So we mentioned earlier, first video that Marty Collner did for him was Still of the Night. And then they got together to record both this video and the Here I Go Again video at the same time. And you obviously, I mean, it's... It's like a part two to Here I Go Again. There's no question. And I think that was probably a huge factor in its success. Not that it's not an amazing song anyway, but any more Tawny Katane and Jaguars I can get in 1987, sign me up. She looks amazing in this video. I would describe this song and that video together as heartbreaking. It, it wrenches you to your soul to watch her and listen to Coverdale sing this song. Kind of an unsung hero on this album is Don Airy, who provided the keyboards for a lot of these songs. Okay. Yeah. On this song, it really helps keep that steady atmospheric background for David to sing over in the guitar. I just think he may not have gotten enough attention for his work on this album. I think it's interesting that around the same time, you had another song by Mr. Mister called Is This Love and a song by Survivor called Is This Love. Yep. Survivor even said, is this love that I'm feeling, yes, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Love it. I mean, what can we say? Clear winner. Couples move out to the middle of the dance floor. <laughs> All right. We ready to move on? Moving on. The next song on the album is Children of the Night. <laughs> Okay, David Coverdale's voice aside for a moment. The guitar is pumping and solid, but very plain. The star of the beginning of this song to me is the drums. Absolutely. It's like a rapid fire triplet in your face. The the beat is not quite what you would expect, and the difference that it makes makes the song. Oh, that was more that Ainsley Dunbar double bass playing we were talking about. That adds kind of just a propulsive locomotive feel to the song like it's a train coming right at you white snake make the ballads the rockers and the headbangers this is a definite headbanger man i cannot listen to this one without risking a neck injury (laughs) okay i'm I'm gonna blaspheme a little bit here i i really like the intro i really like the chorus the pre-chorus is so kind of catchy toony that i'm thinking of the new york seltzer commercials (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, Ouch. I feel like we kind of dripped into a jingle right there at the pre-chorus, <laughs> but it's overall a very good song. This song was written to begin concert. Now are you ready to rock? So David Coverdale talks about how certain songs have certain places in the concert. This one was designed with, you know, drop the curtain, turn off the lights. Are you ready to rock Children of the Night? That's the whole purpose of this song was start of the concert. The interesting thing to me is this, I think, is probably the weakest track on the album. I still love it. I still know all the words. I still absolutely love it. But Kalodner is the guy who said this song is going on the album. And David Coverdale was like, I like the song Looking for Love better. And Collider's like, nope, Children of the Night. So then we'll talk about Looking for Love here in just a minute. Yeah, so important for our folks who are listening overseas, the American version of this album had tracks that were missing from it that you guys got. You guys got a couple extra tracks on the release overseas that we didn't have until 2018, I think. Yeah, the 30th anniversary. Yeah, 2017 anniversary version is the first time we got to get those songs on the album. It's not the best song, but it's, it's fun. I wouldn't have picked it over the other one. No. I wouldn't have either. It's just a fun, brainless, hard-rocking song. The guys who played could not have messed this up if they tried, but yeah, I guess on the overall rankings, this would be a little lower. Yeah. Still a kick-ass song, though. Yeah, it is. This whole album really gave me a new appreciation for Ainsley Dunbar. I had barely heard of him at the time. I thought the drummer was Tommy Aldridge until I bothered to read the liner notes. Yeah, he's killing it on this album. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. You know, you mentioned something to me yesterday, I think. You said Whitesnake and Coverdale are like Ozzy Osbourne. There's a lot of different players, but he always plays with the best. Yeah, and it always, it doesn't matter who the musicians are, that artist always seems to have a certain sound. He always assembles a group of players who stay true to that sound. They may add their own (laughs) embellishments, but Ozzy did that, Dio did that, David Coverdale definitely has done that. Okay, are we done with Children of the Night? I think so, yes sir. All right, moving on to the next song on the album called Straight for the Heart. Mark me down as a huge fan of this one. Mark me down as I'm skipping this song. 
What? Get out of here. This song. Awesome, man. No. This song is like what you would expect to hear on Growing Pains when they were trying to do a heavy metal. <laughs> no. You're killing this, me. The keyboards on this one is great as Don Areas and every other thing. They don't belong in the song. I mean, the guitars are still shredding because you still got John Sykes, but the melody, the, the keyboards, it's just, it's not good. Definite stripper for me. Oh, you're out, dude. You're out. It's a lot of fun. I love the chorus. It never really slows down. It just continues that fun, pumping Summer of 87 song. James, what are you on this one? Oh, I like this one. It's not one of the first ones I'm going to go to, but I'm not going to skip it. It's it's just up-tempo, fun. Coverdale is kind of singing in the more higher end of his range, and I like that. I kind of like the guitar and keyboard interplay on the song. It, it's not one, I, if I was making my essential White Snake list, it probably wouldn't make the top ten, but I like the song. He made fun of me earlier. He's like, you love all these cheesy power ballad stuff, and I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, <Guilty>. I do. <laughs> Guilty, right. Guilty of love, if you will. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Woo! This song was originally called Love Drives You Crazy. It has never been played live before. What a crime. Ah, see, you guys agree, but what they agree with crime. me. They agree with me. They know this is a stinker. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a little bit saccharine rock, but it's fun. Even the cheesier ones, this band could still make sound great. So, yeah, I like the song. All right, we're ready for the last song on the album? Last song on the last album. Last song on the American version of the album. That's right. Here we go. This is Don't Turn Away. So this is the song that's playing when Danielson is watching Allie live her life after breaking up with him. <laughs> Again, I, this one I actually like better. I like this one better than the last song, but this is this is a very 80s heartbreak montage music. Let's me. freaking go. Yes, we love <clears throat> Which, this one as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I've got no problem with that. I love 80s montage movie breakup, all of that. Give it to me. Okay, I <clears throat> am spiking the football. This is the most underappreciated song on the album. I love it. I absolutely am a huge fan of this one. James, where are you on this one? I like it too. It, it's kind of deceptive. You start off thinking it's going to be another White Snake ballad, but then by the time that chorus gets here, the whole stone song just starts building. Until by the end, it's just a headbanging rocker. The way it closes is awesome. It does have a great build for sure. Originally it's called cool. Don't Walk Away. Uh, this is another one of those where David Coverdale's messing around in an old box in his mom's attic and comes across uh, a couple of old tapes, and he came across this one. Played it for Sykes, and he said Sykes is the one who breathed life into this one. Sykes shreds on this one. He really does, particularly towards the end, as you mentioned. David Coverdale said that in the era of social media, this is the one song that he keeps sort of hearing about from fans where they said, you know what? That's a song that I really like. And it's kind of surprised him over the years that it keeps coming up. I wonder if they perform it live. Um, Never played live is what I have in my notes. Hmm. That. This is a perfect mid-concert break song. Well, you'd run into the drum solo. <laughs> so I think they do the drum solo on Crying in the Rain. I think that's where they have the drum solo usually.
this is on the unofficial makeout list of 1987. <laughs> Love it. So that's the end of the album right there. So there are a couple of bonus tracks that we're going to talk gotta about. Got to talk about the bonus tracks. We got to talk about the bonus tracks. So we mentioned that John Kladner said, no, we're not putting that song on the album. There was another song that they're not putting on the album. But John Kladner worked for Geffen and he had no power across the pond with EMI. And they said, we're putting these extra two songs on the album. I think there was some question about how good they sounded on the vinyl version of the album. Is the reason why they didn't put them on or maybe just John Kladner just decided they weren't strong enough songs. As we mentioned, John Kladner made virtually every creative decision to be made about this album. And before we jump into these bonus tracks, I just wanted to touch, this is a really memorable album cover. Yeah, it is. And John Kladner is the guy who hired the artist to do the album cover, but it was David Coverdale who said, hey, I would like to do kind of a Celtic amulet that has these water and fire type of themes to it. And it is a very, very cool. And I don't know, it just, the album cover really, to me, captures the visual for what the sound of the band is powerful regal but breaking down some walls this is the best white snake cover apart from slide it in oh yeah where, <laughs> where you had the the cleavage of the uh, model there it's like snake necklace yes so let's play the first bonus track this one's called looking for love Tired of waiting and closing my eyes I'm asking myself Why is it all my horizons Are so far away I look in the mirror Don't like what I see In my reflection A stranger is staring at me Looking for love we start off very airy in this one, very glittery. To me, this song is way better than Straight for the Heart. Like, way better. This is one of the stronger tracks of all of the tracks on the album. And I got to use a Jason analogy. This is the scene in Miami Vice where Tubbs <laughs> is driving along because he accidentally shot Crockett looking <laughs> wistfully into the distance as he drives his Ferrari. I love this song. This song could have been a hit with a video. Absolutely. You put Tony Katane walking around, you know, brushing her hair or sunglasses. This is a hit song. Tony Katane sitting in a lazy boy watching TV, and I'm still going to watch this video. You squirt some water on her. This is a hit. <laughs> I love this one. This is the song they used to audition drummers. I can see that because it's you got to be able to cover all your bases on this one. It's a real dynamic song. And you start off slow, then you come in with that massive sounding snare drum hit. And then from then on, it just steadily builds. So yeah, you got to be able to cover all your bases on this one. I think it's a great song. I don't see why it wasn't included on the original track listing either. It should have been. And I'm not going to argue, this is a better song than Straight for the Heart. David Coverdale says this is one of his favorite White Snake songs. Yeah, I love this song. Collage. He sounds great on it. It's that sort of, is this love, sort of the haunting vocals. He's much more singing in his chest voice on this one. He's not hitting those high notes like he normally does. This is much more of a the old blues sound that he had, but it is heartfelt, it is genuine, and I think it's fantastic. 
go on a limb here and say John Kladner is wrong and this is the true unsung underappreciated song in this album and John Kladner is going to say eight times platinum anything more on this one no it's a great song I agree with everything you guys have said it would not have been out of place on the original album it has all the elements of a white snake song it it should have been on the album all right so let's wrap it up with the last song this song's called you're gonna break my heart again Okay, if it's me making this album, I'm getting rid of Straight for the Heart. I'm putting those two as the last songs on the album. This is such a strong closer. It reminds you of who the band is. It's kicking butt. It's got that solid bumping bass as it comes in. I think this is a great ending to this album. I probably would have preferred the European version when I when I was buying out. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think Kaladner was wrong. I can't re- I can't argue the results. <laughs> I was say, but didn't you just say <laughs> eight times platinum? I, I think these are two stronger songs than Children of the Night and Straight for the Heart. I can't really argue. I mean, I think it's a great song. It's got all those essential White Snake elements we've talked about. A great melody, great playing. I mean, it would not have been out of place amongst the rest of the songs. They were just really on their game in 87. I mean, Sykes and Coverdale and Katane, they were it in 87, you know? Okay, guys, this is the end of the album. This is the end of the history. And some stuff happened after this. I mentioned the Marty Kallner episode, but there's a little bit more to the end of this story. Yeah, sadly, all things must come to an end. David Coverdale and the queen of rock and roll, Tiny Contain, sadly got divorced just a few years after this album came out. So I've got a story for you on why they actually got divorced. Oh, I don't know this. Go go ahead. Tell me. So in her defense, Tiny Contain said that she was a bit of a spender. Okay. She said that David got all bent out of shape because she was spending $70,000 a month. Holy crap. On shopping and shoes and, you know, queen of rock and roll stuff. David Coverdale said $70,000 a month. I wish <laughs> it was $35,000 a day. <laughs> he goes, and I've got the receipts to prove it. Ah, uh, yes. Well, okay. That honey drenched million dollar ass <laughs> only takes you so far, I guess. Well, there's two kinds of sex that you pay for. <laughs> One is illegal and the other one's more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys, we're going to go into our Shirley Showcase. We have a special guest, Adam Mascheski, who is going to give his opinion on these two monumental albums. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad that Jason and Dee gave me the opportunity to give a quick comparison of these two massive albums from 1987. I loved the harder stuff back in the 80s. I still do today. And I got both of these albums the day that they came out. I think that one of these albums has aged better than the other, and I definitely have a favorite between the two. Girls, Girls, Girls starts off with Wild Side and the title track, which is one of the best one-two punches of any metal album of the 80s. These two songs are the two best on the album by a mile. I think that Dancing on Glass is probably the third best song on Girls, 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 but it's such a far cry from the first two songs. After Dancing on Glass, maybe you can talk about You're All I Need, but that's only because MTV refused to play the video. I didn't even know there was a video for it until a couple years ago. It's an okay song at best, but it's not going on any playlist that I have. Everything after the title track just feels like filler. They didn't play much of it on tour in 1987, and that was even though they played over 100 dates that year. So in my opinion, this is Motley Crue's weakest album of their first five releases. 
Then you have Whitesnake's self-titled 87 album, which was a monster and sold over 9 million copies. It opens with a redone version of Crying in the Rain, and I assume that longtime Whitesnake fans were wondering where their bluesy influence went. The bluesy swagger they used to have is definitely gone by the time that Bad Boy starts, and then Still of the Night defines what Whitesnake is for a majority of fans. That song alone shot them to superstardom, and I'm sure that Coverdale is still cashing massive checks off of its success. I wasn't a huge Whitesnake fan prior to the album. I'd seen some of the videos on MTV, but this album was definitely my go-to in 1987 and 88. It had four massive singles and videos, and Whitesnake really took advantage of MTV at its peak. Overall, on this album, I'm not skipping a song until song number eight, which is Straight for the Heart. That's a song that probably should have been replaced by Looking for Love on the U.S. release. Coverdale has said that Looking for Love is the best song that he wrote with Sykes, and I have no doubt had it been included on the U.S. version and released as a single with a video, the album would have sold at least another million copies. I think it's pretty obvious where I fall in the comparison, so even with two of the songs being re-recordings of earlier songs, Whitesnake's self-titled 87 album is phenomenally better than Girls, Girls, Girls. The hits are bigger, there's more of them, and there's maybe only one skipper on the entire album. This album is a top 10 album for me overall. Thanks everyone for listening, and take care. Adam, were you sitting in when we were recording? <laughs> hey, great minds think alike. That's what I got to say. My goodness. We haven't given our final judgment on Girls, Girls, Girls compared to Whitesnake yet. Mm-hmm. But man, he hit basically the same things we talked about. You can't deny that the Whitesnake album introduces us to an entirely different band than the Whitesnake before. And uh, I mean, I got to point out that he's on the exact same page of what the Skipper song is on this album. He nailed it. <laughs> Not only did he pick the Skipper, the same one that you picked, yeah. but he also was a, a lover of looking for yeah i mean can't say you're right enough um i don't know if i'm going to agree with you on which album is best you guys will have to tune in next week to find out what we think about girls 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 and whether it tops this one out or whether like adam said white snake is the clear winner adam thank you very much we sure appreciate it okay guys that's the end of our coverage of this album track by track we hope you enjoyed it we hope you we introduced you to a couple of new songs here at the end if you're an american listener like us Go back and check this album out again. Be sure and leave a review and a five-star rating on our podcast app, if you would. And James, can't tell you thank you enough for coming in here and doing this with us. And thank you so much for your support of our podcast for the last however many months, years it's been. I had an absolute blast, guys. I mean, this... This is an album that's near and dear to my heart. So getting to discuss it with you guys was a blast. Had an absolutely great time. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Hey, why don't you come back next week and talk girls, girls, girls with us? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll? I'm there. All right. (laughs) Sweet. So, guys, be sure and join us next week. We are going to be comparing this album to the Girls, Girls, Girls album by Motley Crue. The bands, I mean, they played together on tour started off with white snake opening for motley crew and kind of ended up with white snake saying we're going to go headline our own show yeah see you guys later fantastic can't wait to dive into that one the dregs of heroin next week <laughs> and somehow they managed to pump out a pretty great album pretty incredible <laughs>